Now read that same psalm along with Psalm 29, page 543 in your pew Bible, Psalms 28 and 29, two psalms of David the King. He says, to you, O Lord, I call my rock. Be not deaf to me. Lest, if you be silent to me, I become like those who go down to the pit. Hear the voice of my pleas for mercy when I cry to you for help, when I lift up my hands toward your most holy sanctuary. Do not drag me off with the wicked, with the workers of evil who speak peace with their neighbors while evil is in their hearts. Give to them according to their work and according to the evil of their deeds. Give to them according to the work of their hands. Render them their due reward. Because they do not regard the works of the Lord or the work of his hands. He will tear them down and build them up no more. Blessed Be the Lord, for he has heard the voice of my pleas for mercy. The Lord is my strength and my shield. In him my heart trusts and I am helped. My heart exalts and with my song I give thanks to him. The Lord is the strength of his people. He is the saving refuge of his anointed. Oh, save your people and bless your heritage. Be their shepherd and carry them forever. And in Psalm 29, it says, Ascribe to the Lord, O heavenly beings, or sons of might. Ascribe to the Lord glory and strength. Ascribe to the Lord the glory due his name. Worship the Lord in the splendor of holiness. The voice of the Lord is over the waters. The God of glory thunders, the Lord over many waters. The voice of the Lord is powerful. The voice of the Lord is full of majesty. The voice of the Lord breaks the cedars. The Lord breaks the cedars of Lebanon. He makes Lebanon to skip like a calf and Syrian like a young wild ox. The voice of the Lord flashes forth flames of fire. The voice of the Lord shakes the wilderness. The Lord shakes the wilderness of Kadesh. The voice of the Lord makes the deer give birth. Strips the forest bare. And in his temple, all cry glory. The Lord sits enthroned over the flood. The Lord sits enthroned as king forever. May the Lord give strength to his people. May the Lord bless his people with peace. Congregation, I I remind you what's been going on in the Psalms just before this. David in Psalms 25, 26, and 27 has been crying out for God not to put him to shame, not to let his enemies exalt over him who seek to trap him in a net with violent hatred. That's what he said in Psalm 25, or then in 26 and 27, he adds that these enemies of whom he speaks bring false accusations against him that put his life in danger. They breathe out violence with their false witness. And so in the last couple of Psalms, he's been praying for vindication. 
Now in Psalm 28, he prays for justice. Not only that God would, would lift him up from the pit and hear his cry for help, but that he would also give these enemies according to the work of their hands and the evil of their deeds. That he would render them their due reward, for which he then praises God at the end of the psalm, trusting that he will. This is not in many ways a popular message. Um, This is not one of of those psalms that you'll see making its way into many hallmark greeting cards or contemporary worship songs. But nevertheless, God here gives us this inspired prayer of David as a model for how we should pray. For how we pray, thy kingdom come. Which is to pray, Lord's Day 48, that God would preserve and increase his church and destroy the devil's work. Every force which revolts against him, every conspiracy against his holy word. That's how Christ teaches us to pray in the Lord's Prayer, which is simply the the Cliff Notes version of the prayer book that he's already given us in the Psalms, where he teaches us here how to pray for justice. And as we look at this prayer for justice, I want to point out four aspects of this prayer that I think will will instruct us. Um, First, that David's prayer for justice is birthed out of assurance of God's mercy. I see that in verses 1 and 2, where those, there's two little um, details that I think we do well not to overlook. First in verse 1, as David is, is lifting up his hands to God for help, which, just as a sort of aside, is um, often in the Psalms the posture of, of lament or, or of desperation. Um, So often when in the Psalms it says, uh, lift up your hands, or I lift up my hands, it's it's the the posture of of looking to God completely as as the the one to save because uh, David cannot bring himself out of this situation. Yet as he lifts up his hands to God, acknowledging his need for help, notice where it says that he lifts his hands toward. It's rather as in in verse 2, it says that he lifts them toward God's most holy sanctuary. This is much like Jonah in Jonah 2 in that prayer from the depths who who says, I look toward your holy temple. David, like Jonah, looks to the place where God's grace is found. This is the same place, remember, where David longed to go back in Psalm 27. The place where the God of the covenant meets with his people, your most holy sanctuary. If you look in the footnote that you might have there in your Bible, literally, it's, it's God's innermost sanctuary or the, the most holy place. He's, he's talking here about the holy of holies, the innermost sanctum of God's holy dwelling where the Ark of the Covenant was where only the high priest went just once a year to make atonement on the Day of Atonement. The place where God's beauty was revealed in the blood that was there sprinkled. The beauty that David longed to see in the atonement that there was made. Because of that atonement and the mercy that it symbolized from this gracious God, David is assured that God will hear. He's he's been waiting for God to hear ever since the end of Psalm 27 or in verse 14. he, he, He says to himself, wait for the Lord, be strong, let your heart take courage, David, wait for the Lord. Now in Psalm 28.1, he's, he's still waiting. And so he says, Lord, don't be silent or, or deaf to me. 
Don't make me keep waiting. And then lifts his hands towards God's most holy place, which fills him with confidence that God will hear. Even though David is not a priest and so is not able to enter himself into that innermost sanctum, he is confident that his prayers do and that the God of mercy who there dwells will therefore answer. That his pleas for mercy in verse 2 will be heard. He is assured of God's mercy as he remembers the place of God's mercy. I think we, we learn something here about the value of rehearsing in our minds God's gracious acts of atonement as we come to him in prayer. Lord's Day 45 says that as we pray to God in heaven, we do so fully recognizing our need and misery, yet confident that even though we do not deserve it, God will surely hear our prayer because of Christ our Lord, the one who reconciled us to him by the atonement that he made. David is here reminding himself of that same thing. As he looks toward the innermost sanctum of God's holy dwelling, he's reminding himself that he will hear my prayer because he is a God of grace as the atonement that's there made symbolizes. I think David does something of the same in verse 1 where he, he calls God his rock. I think again here he is reminding himself that God is the God of mercy. This term uh, where David calls God his rock is, is a term that, that comes up several times in the Psalms. And, and certainly part of what it symbolizes is that God is, is his refuge, the one who provides a place of safety for him. But a number of places in the Psalms, especially Psalm 78 and, and Psalm 95, which we sang this morning, this term of God as rock comes up in the context of, of God having provided for his people in the wilderness in Exodus chapter 17. Remember that passage where God's great glory cloud comes and it, it hovers over the rock that was then struck so that life-giving water might, might flow to God's people. It's another symbol of God's grace and mercy where Paul actually says in 1 Corinthians 10 that that stricken rock symbolized Christ who was pierced for us so that life-giving water might flow to his people. And so we may have here yet a second indicator that David is praying this prayer out of an assurance of God's mercy based on his gracious acts of redemption in the past. If you want to be assured of God's grace and mercy as you come to him in prayer, remind yourself of what he's done in the past. Of Christ our rock who was stricken for us that we might find mercy as our prayers lived into God's most holy place. That's the first lesson that we learn about prayer from this psalm. And yet connected to that, we also learn that the the justice which occupies the central prayer of this psalm, verses 3 through 5, is not at odds with the merciful character of the one from whom this justice is asked. Think about it, if if the the central um, petition of this prayer is that prayer for justice in verses 3 through 5, how how does David get himself in the frame of mind to ask God for that justice? He does so by reminding himself of God's mercy in verses 1 and 2. For it's out of God's gracious heart of love that he answers the prayers of his people for justice against those who afflict them. In fact, if you... Turn to Deuteronomy chapter 32. There in the 
the Song of Moses. Actually, one place where I think we see this very clearly. We're in verse 35 in this sort of final song of Moses for the very end of his life and ministry. Verse 35, he, he says, Vengeance is mine and recompense. That's what actually Paul is quoting in Romans chapter 12. And he says, remember that vengeance belongs to the Lord. But right after, he, he says, vengeance is mine. And he's speaking for God there. Vengeance is mine and recompense. It says, for the time when the, the foot of your enemies will slip is, is coming. And the day of their calamity is at hand. Immediately after that in verse 36... It says, for the Lord will vindicate his people and he will have compassion on his servants. Notice that word, for. That in which the justice and vengeance of verse 35 is grounded is the compassionate heart of God in verse 36. Moses did not see some inconsistency between a God of vengeance and a God of compassion. Nor did David. But he prays in light of the revelation of God there in that song, that the God of mercy who provided for his people in the wilderness and and continues to from his holy place will do so again by giving his enemies their just reward. Don't listen to anyone who tells you that the God of the Old Testament was just a God of justice while the God of the New Testament is just a God of mercy. No, he is in both places the God of both. As we see even at the cross of Christ where justice and mercy kiss. The first thing that we learn about how to pray for justice is that our prayers for justice are birthed out of an assurance of God's mercy. And then second, they're based on the principles of God's justice. We see in uh, verses 3 and 4 where Um, David prays, don't drag me off with the wicked who speak peace in their heart with their neighbor while evil is in their hearts, but give to them according to their work. He, He says, according to the evil of their deeds and according to the work of their hands. And that threefold repetition of of the phrase, according to, along with that last little phrase, render them their due reward, we see that what David is praying for is just retribution. He's praying, Lord, let the the punishment fit the crime. Consider what they've done and punish them accordingly. This is the Old Testament principle of just recompense, an eye for an eye. We heard it this morning. He's saying, let the punishment fit the crime. So David is praying not only with an awareness of God's mercy, but also God's justice. As they have done, so let it be done to them. That's a scriptural prayer to pray. Lord, consider the evil of their hearts. Verse 3, how they make a show of hypocrisy, speaking peace with their neighbors, cozying up to them while they plot their overthrow in their heart. Judge them not based on their outward appearance, but judge them based on the evil that is in their hearts. They do not regard you, verse 5, the works of your hands. He's praying for God to consider the evil in their hearts and judge them accordingly. All the while distinguishing between them and the righteous. 
So he prays in verse 3. He says, but don't drag me off with them. Which, of course, presupposes that he will drag the wicked off. But David prays that God, who tests hearts and minds, Psalm 26, verse 2, will test his heart and mind, therefore distinguish between him and the wicked. And therefore guard him in the day of judgment from the flood of God's wrath. David prays knowing that that wrath is certain, asking for God to do according to what he's already said he will do, but then says, Lord, don't judge me with them. Judge with with discernment. Don't judge me with them. As he said in Psalm 1, God knows the way of the righteous, the way of the wicked will perish. So he's saying, do what you said in Psalm 1. Do what you've said throughout the law of Moses and and let the wickedness of their heart be judged. This is not a mean prayer to pray, but is in fact the way that Christ himself teaches us to pray in the New Testament when he holds up that persistent widow in Luke chapter 18 as a model for faithful prayer who prays day after day for justice against her adversary. We give Second uh, Timothy chapter four. We looked at that a little over a month ago at the end of our, our series through Second Timothy. Remember uh, Paul, where he he prays regarding Alexander the coppersmith who did him much harm and the, the cause of the gospel much harm. He says, "Lord, repay him according to his deeds." It is not wrong to pray for the balances of justice to be weighed even. And perhaps if we were in the same situation as David, we would understand that. It's interesting, there there are a lot of of criticisms of these kinds of psalms saying that that we shouldn't pray them or or that they don't reflect the niceness of the New Testament, but it's very interesting that you don't hear those criticisms uh, coming from theologians in war-torn Africa or in the Middle East, but rather you hear those criticisms coming from the comfort of of the offices of those in the West who have known nothing of, of the kind of desperation from which this prayer proceeds. It is a prayer prayed in light of God's word from the pit of verse 1 that until we've been there, we should be slow to criticize. David's prayer for justice is in keeping with the principles of justice that are found in God's word, praying that the God of all the earth will do right. Because of his mercy, because of his justice, and then next, because of his concern for his glory, and for his people. David's prayer is not a self-serving prayer, but is pray to the view to the glory of God. You see that in verse 5. The ultimate reason he prays for the justice that he does is not because they have hurt him and, and they deserve to pay, but it's because they have not regarded the works of the Lord or the works of his hands. The ultimate reason why David prays for justice is because of their rebellion against God. His prayer for God to destroy the works of the devil and every conspiracy against his kingdom, as, as, as Christ teaches us to pray in the second petition, is, is flowing from his ultimate concern in the first petition of the Lord's Prayer that God's name would be hallowed. That he would be glorified and those who do not regard the works of his hands would be judged that God would glorify himself through the judgment of those who rebel against him and hate him. 
David's prayer for justice is not born out of self-serving interest, but a concern for the glory of God. Remember, David is God's king. And so their assault on him is ultimately an assault on God's kingdom. David identifies himself in verse 8 as God's anointed. The Hebrew word there is Messiah. And so we need to remember that this whole prayer is the prayer of God's king, the representative of his kingdom. This is not prayed out of some petty sense of, of vindictive spitefulness, but this is prayed in his office as God's anointed king. He's praying as God's anointed king in whose loins the Messiah waits. And so those who oppose him ultimately oppose God and his Messiah. And so David's zeal in this psalm is nothing but his concern for God's glory. Martin Lloyd-Jones said of these prayers for God's justice, he is simply grieved and troubled because these people are not honoring God as they should be. That is David's supreme concern. And should be ours too as we pray to God for justice, not seeking our own vindication, but his own glory. And then in addition to that, also the good of his people. We are after praising God in verses 6 and 7 in anticipation of how God will answer David's prayer. David then praises God in verses 8 and 9 as the one who in saving his anointed becomes the strength of his people. He says, oh, save your people and bless your heritage. Be their shepherd and carry them forever. David is here recognizing that because he is the king of God's people, as it goes with him, so it goes with them. And so his prayer for God to save him by judging those who oppose him is prayed out of a concern for the church and what it would mean for them if their king went down to the pit. David teaches us to pray for justice out of a concern for God's glory and a concern for God's people. He would shepherd them forever by striking down the enemies of the gospel who seek to harm them. That he would shepherd them by judging those who afflict them and rebel against their king. In fact, it's interesting how he uses this shepherd imagery after just having prayed for justice. It sort of makes you think of 1 Samuel uh, 16 and 17, where, where David describes the, the great beasts, the, the lion, the bear who had sought to, to attack the, the sheep that he was watching over. And so as a good shepherd, he fought off those beasts who sought to destroy his sheep. That's what David is praying here that God would do, that he would shepherd them by judging those who afflict them and rebel against their king. And we can pray this too. In particular, for our persecuted brothers and sisters who by tearing down and building up no more those who torment them, God becomes their strength and their shepherd. We pray for justice out of a concern for God's glory and the good of his people. Just think about what we heard this morning. Uh, praying not just for, for the good of, of, of his people, but of all his image bearers. We, we pray for justice out of a concern for the glory of God and the good of, of his people, uh, more particularly in terms of, of the church of Jesus Christ, but also his image bearers. 
This is how David teaches us to pray. Our prayer for justice is birthed out of an assurance of God's mercy. It's based on the principles of God's justice that are revealed to us clearly in his word. And it's born of a concern for God's people and supremely for God's glory. And then last of all, our prayer for justice is also balanced by a desire for conversion. That is, the conversion of the very ones who torment us. We see this as we move from Psalm 28 into Psalm 29, which picks up many of the same ideas from Psalm 28. Um, Psalm 28 has been praying for the, the justice of God to be poured out. And now what Psalm 29 does is, is it pictures that judgment being poured out with a portrait of the flood, where the justice of God was, was poured out uh, back in Noah's day. Psalm 28, uh, at the very beginning, David says, Lord, Lord, don't be deaf to me or don't be silent. And then Psalm 29 responds with a sevenfold reference to the voice of the Lord. Did you see that come up over and over, starting in verse 3? The voice of the Lord that is over the waters, the voice of the Lord that is powerful and, and full of majesty. It breaks the cedars, it flashes forth flames of fire, it shakes the wilderness, and it makes the deer give birth. Reference to to God's voice of judgment in almost every verse of this psalm mentioned seven times as a number of fullness is in answer to David's prayer that God would not be silent. The answer in Psalm 29 is, is that God will indeed speak seven times, in fact, his word of judgment in answer to David's prayer in Psalm 28. And then we come to the end of the psalm, and in verse 11, that reference to God being the strength of his people who blesses them echoes the very prayer of David in Psalm 28, verses 8 and 9. The Lord is the strength of his people. O Lord, save your people and bless them. And then Psalm 29 ends on exactly the same note. This psalm flowing out of that psalm. And yet, while Psalm 28 is a prayer to God... It's interesting that Psalm 29 is addressed not to the Lord, but to the sons of the mighty. Notice the the footnote, I pointed this out as I was reading it, but footnote at verse 1, if you're you're reading the ESV, um, it says that that what the ESV has there translated as um, heavenly beings is is literally um, sons of God or sons of, of might, as we sang from our Psalter. It is not, in my estimation, a reference to the angels or to the gods, But I think the older commentators like Calvin and Henry and Bonar and Dixon are right when they take this as a reference to earthly kings and princes, to those who rule with power as God's appointed vice regents. In that sense, they are the the sons of God or sons of might. He's, He's speaking to people with earthly power and authority and calling them to ascribe to the Lord the glory that is due him. He's calling them to do the very things that the enemies of David are not doing in Psalm 28.5, where they're not regarding the works of the Lord. Now, David calls the, the mighty men of Psalm 29 to do just that. So given all these striking correspondences between Psalm 28 and Psalm 29, I think that the mighty men to whom David speaks are the rulers like Saul who oppose him in Psalm 28. And yet even as he prays to God for justice, He invites them to avoid that judgment by coming to God for refuge and worshiping God in the splendor of holiness. 
David is doing here the same thing that he did in Psalm 2, where, where he said that God's Messiah would break his enemies to pieces with a rod of irony. He would dash them to pieces like a potter's vessel, but then he speaks to them in his grace and says, Now therefore, O kings, be wise, be warned, O rulers of the earth, and invites them to serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling, to kiss the Son, lest he be angry, and they perish in the way. For his wrath is quickly kindled, but blessed are all who take refuge in him. As in Psalm 2, at the very start of the Psalter, David is, is praying in that same spirit, inviting the enemies of God to become friends and avoid the flood of wrath that will otherwise be poured out upon them which he then describes in verses 3 through 9 in a a description of that paradigmatic Old Testament portrait of God's wrath, the flood of Noah, which he mentions explicitly in verse 10, where it says the Lord sits enthroned over the flood. That's a word that comes up 13 times in the Old Testament, 12 of them in Genesis 6 through 11, the only other occurrence right here in Psalm 29. And so it's clear that the waters of which David speaks, starting in verse 3, are the waters of Noah's flood, which fell at the voice of the Lord whose glory thunders. It is powerful and full of majesty. It breaks the cedars of Lebanon. It it makes those mighty logs snap like a twig and, and skip across the waters like a young calf across a field. He is describing the flood of God's wrath that came once and will come again, the power of which none can withstand. But it shakes the wilderness. It flashes forth flames of fire. It strips the forest bare and makes the animals writhe in anguish so that they go into premature labor for fear of it. God's power is unparalleled. As he sits enthroned over the flood as king forever and in his temple that is a reference to the whole earth, all cry glory. This is one of the most frightening descriptions of the power and strength of God, which as David says in verse 11, is exercised on behalf of his people who need not fear but have peace. Hence the summons in verse 1 for those enemies of the king to join themselves to God's people by turning to him in faith. That's what this whole psalm is, a description of God's wrath that according to Psalm 28 is certain that only those who find refuge in God by faith and repentance will avoid only those who ascribe to him glory and strength and regard the works of the Lord. Most preeminently, From our New Testament point of view, those who regard the work of the Lord accomplished at the cross, where David's son gives his life as a ransom for many, undergoing the flood of God's wrath, as he says in Mark 10, that he will be baptized with the flood of God's wrath, averting the judgment that would otherwise fall on those who take refuge in him. David is graciously calling those enemies of the gospel to consider the works of the Lord and find refuge in his son who will bear the weight of the flood of God's wrath in his own body on the cross and so become the ark of safety for those who trust him. Jesus will be baptized with God's 
judgment, the, the wrath and power and strength that Psalm 29 described will be poured out upon him at the cross so that we might pass through these waters safely. And he's calling all the kings of the earth and lesser men like us, all who in our natural state oppose God's anointed king to come to him as our ark of refuge on which we might pass through the flood of God's judgment unscathed because he already bore it for us. That's part of what's pictured in our baptism, that he already bore the flood of God's wrath for us so that we we are united to, to him in his death and need not die again. He is our ark of safety. And and David the king is here calling his enemies to to join us in the boat. And in so doing, pictures the very heart of Christ toward his enemies. The very heart that we, his people, must have even as we pray to God for justice. Praying yes out of a concern for God's glory and the good of his people. Yes out of a firm conviction of his commitment to rule with justice. But also out of an assurance of that same mercy that we mentioned in Psalm 28 verses 1 and 2. Praying that even those who at present torment God's people would flee to him for refuge. So that the justice here spoken of would be exhausted at the cross of Christ. This is not a cheap fulfillment of the Psalms of justice, but but David here teaches us to pray for God's justice with an earnest desire that the objects of his wrath would become objects of his grace and he would glorify himself and shepherd his people by transforming his enemies into friends. One pastor said, confessing their wickedness and falling upon his forgiveness to be run through with a sword of his mercy that has power to transform and make new. As you think about the sermon that we heard this morning and our prayer for God to defend the unborn, is this our posture? That we would be glad to see God answer that prayer by the miraculous conversion of those who at present campaign for and profit from their death. David here teaches us that we who were once objects of God's wrath, deserving of this flood of God's judgment to be poured out upon us, must pray for justice with this kind of spirit, desiring that God's enemies and ours would become friends. And if they will not but persist in their rebellion, yes, we pray that God will do whatever it takes to protect his people and protect his image bearers, being their shepherd and carrying them forever. Our first instinct as we pray for justice is to pray that those like us who once deserved God's wrath would do what David here calls them to do and turn to his son for safety. May God grant that all his enemies would fall on the sword of his mercy and be made new. May God grant that anyone here this day who is a a stranger to grace, who has not yet regarded the works of the Lord and the person of his Son, would ascribe to him glory and worship him in the splendor of holiness by faith and repentance, confessing that this flood of judgment is what you deserve, but Christ bore it for you, that you might worship him forever and experience that peace of Psalm 29, verse 11. That when the flood of God's wrath comes yet a second time, as 2 Peter chapter 3 says, it will, that you will pass through safely on the ark of safety that is his son. That be true of all of us. 
by grace through faith, in Christ our King. Amen. Our Father in heaven, we ascribe to you glory and render you honor for the power and judgment that we behold in this psalm and pray that you would make every one of us to flee to you for refuge. Even those who at present torment your people. Lord, we think especially of our persecuted brothers and sisters and pray that you would grant them relief from their affliction by bestowing the grace of conversion on those who torment them. For the same thing regarding our, uh, those who, who torment our, our unborn neighbors. But Lord, if those who do this will not turn to your son by faith and repentance, we pray that you would shepherd and save your people by whatever means necessary. As an expression of your mercy and your justice for your glory and your people's good, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.